0: Leadership is something that is easy in theory, difficult in practice. Our guest tonight is going to talk to us about Army leadership. You're not going to want to miss this one. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is The Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back to episode 19 of The Chuck Williams Show. It's getting to be a regular Tuesday night thing. I've been doing them since, how long have we been doing them, Dylan?
1: Uh, at least like like three four months, I want to say.
0: Yeah, it's been we've only missed a couple of weeks, I think. So been pretty regular. Well, tonight we've got a really interesting guest. He's got a he's got a strong army background. Retired Colonel David Fivecoat. David, thanks for joining us.
1: Chuck, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, having me on your show tonight.
0: Well, David and I got to know each other and. Uh, Let's see. It would have been in April of 2015. Somebody thought it was a good idea to surgically attach me to Colonel Fivecoat. They just didn't tell him, as he was the head of the Airborne and Ranger Training Brigade back then. With the mo- one of the most difficult assignments, you'll see, he was gender integration of U.S. Army Ranger School, and I there I was the only local reporter attached, and I lived about two blocks from. <laughs> Colonel Fivecoat, so so uh, it was an interesting time. I mean, that was sort of where our relationship began, wasn't it?
1: It, it was. It, it was a great time, and it, I was really fortunate to get to know you and the other reporters that covered uh, the story of the gender integration of Ranger School over the six-month saga uh, that, that, that we went through. And so it, our friendship really started there, and then it's continued uh, on to this day.
0: Well, I mean, we're going to talk about gender integration Of Ranger School and where they are now. But the first thing I want to do is just sort of, Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you live here in Columbus, but you are not
1: from around here, right? Right. I'm not from around here. Uh, I grew up outside of uh, Columbus, Ohio, the other Columbus, uh, in a little town called Delaware. Uh, I went to West Point uh, and then served in the Army for 24 years as an infantry officer. I was in a variety of assignments, mainly in the light the light community, which was the 82nd Airborne Division, the 101st. And I think we're going to talk about it later. I eventually commanded a battalion in the 101st Airborne Division, the 3rd Battalion, 187 uh, Infantry, the Iron Rakassans, uh, And we went to Afghanistan in 2010 and 2011 uh, down in, in southern Afghanistan. Went on to command the Airborne Ranger Training Brigade, which is where I, I, I met you. And then in 2017, I decided to make the transition and stay here in Columbus because I'm a huge fan. Of Columbus, Georgia, and and everything that it has to offer, I was just talking to Dylan a little bit ago about some of the history here of Columbus and and why it's such an important and unique town.
0: And history is important to you. You are a history major at West Point, right?
1: Right. Yeah, I majored in military history. Wrote on World War II uh, then, and then I went on to for a master's, wrote on World War One. Uh, and so, uh, love history, uh, love being down in the historic district here in Columbus, uh, was telling Dylan just a second ago, live right around the corner from, uh, Doc Pemberton's old house. Doc Pemberton, for those of you who are new to Columbus, uh, is the person that invented Coca-Cola and he invented it right here in Columbus, Georgia as a pharmacist, eventually moves to Atlanta and then it takes off from there.
0: So, so you have bought into the local history and of this town, but you know, You're a World War II history student, historian, I guess, would be pretty fair. What do you know about World War II that maybe not be common, but a lot of us should know?
1: Um, So one of the more interesting things I've been talking about lately is the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, which is the easy company, the, the famed band of brothers, and the fact that they trained up in Toccoa, Georgia. And so anybody that lives here in Columbus, if you want to, you can get in the car, and three hours later, you can be in Toccoa, Georgia. You can walk up the three-mile route that they ran every day during training in 1942 and 1943. They've got a wonderful little museum there. Uh, and you can go get to the top of Curahee Mountain, which, which uh, means stands alone, and in the in the regiment adopted that as its nickname. But it's a little piece of, of World War II history that's right here in Georgia. It's three hours away. It's easy to get to. The hike up and down is is. Is strenuous. Um, it is up a mountain and back down, but uh, my 11-year-old daughter and my dog and I all made it, so we're, we're okay. And
0: those guys played a significant role in World War II. I mean, tell me a little bit about it.
1: Right, right. The, uh, these guys were the ones that jumped into Normandy on June 6, 1944, uh, four, which is 76 years ago this year, uh, landed in behind uh, German lines. They were disorganized. Uh, and they managed to come together. They knew uh, the purpose behind their operation, and, and so they worked hard uh, to execute that in the middle of the night uh, with with not all their people and uh, under a lot of challenging situations. and uh, really made the difference there at Utah Beach, which is the, the beach where the 4th Infantry Division lands. Uh, it was not as hard a fight as they, they had at Omaha, and that was because of the airborne that, that was there. And so we were able to establish the foothold, on the continent because of these guys that were sort of they were the they they were the the elite uh guys of of the military at that point in time and they helped help pave the way for the for the foothold in Europe and then the eventual uh march all the way across Europe and in the surrender of Nazi Germany
0: Growing up in Columbus outside of Columbus Ohio when did you first start thinking that the military might be a, a option West Point and a military might be a career option for you
1: yeah, so um, so I loved to read as a kid, and my mom would take me to the Delaware County Public Library. They they actually had to get an exception to policy so I could take out more books because she was tired of taking me there every week because uh, I would read through all the books. But I was I I went through the entire World War II history section uh, at at the Delaware County Public Library. Um, all the generals in World War II are West Point grads, and so it became one of those things where it, at West Point seemed like a a place that was definitely on the college list, <laughs> applied and got into West Point, and then decided to go uh, without a whole lot of uh, second thoughts there. And, uh, so you never thought about going to o- the Ohio State <laughs> University? <laughs> uh, well, I will say that uh, freshman year at West Point is not your typical uh, college experience, and there were a few times uh, during freshman year that I thought, man, I really wish I had gone to Ohio State and gotten, gotten the real college experience.
0: Obviously, you have to have an, an appointment from a congressman or a senator to get into West Point. Um, who recommended you for West Point?
1: So I eventually went to West Point under, a, well, there's three ways. You can do a vice pre, the vice president, the uh, senator, or a representative. You're encouraged to apply to all of them. Uh, I eventually went under the vice president, which was Vice President George uh, Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, so I, I, was a vice presidential appointee.
0: Wow. That I've never, I've never heard that. I thought you were appointed by your Congressman in, in Ohio.
1: Well, so I, I actually was also selected by the, my U S representative and one out of the two senators, but West Point picks, uh, which one you'll attend under in, in order that they can maximize the number of, of students that they can actually attend.
0: So um, that's an honor, I think, to have the Vice President of the United States of America recommend you to attend West Point. That sounds like an incredible honor to me.
1: Well, there was only five of us each year, and so you know, I, I didn't know anything as a, as a, as a young freshman uh, at West Point, but yeah, it seems, seems pretty cool that, that George H.W. Bush uh, recommended me to attend.
0: What did you say in your letter to President Bush? Do you remember any of that now? you remember I, how you made your case?
1: I don't. Uh, I do remember. So uh, the U.S. representative actually uh, interviewed us, and I think it was John Kasich at that point in time. who goes on to be later a
0: presidential candidate.
1: Later a presidential candidate. Uh, he, he was our representative uh, in the district that, that I'm in that I was in at that point in time. Um, but they typically have other people do the interviews. But they asked me some sort of uh, some sort of question about how I would take this hill with a, with a problem. And I had a reason half decent answer to, Hey, I would, you know, maybe look for a way to go around behind or something like that. And they really liked that, that answer. So I remember that from, from the application process.
0: Did your parents encourage you to attend West Point? That seems like it's a decision you would weigh with everybody around you.
1: Um, my, my parents were very supportive of me attending college. Um, I think uh, my mom uh, liked the idea of me attending West Point, but at that moment when you stand up in the gym and they say, okay, parents, you have two minutes to say goodbye to your kid and the kids are going to go one way and the parents are going to go the other way. uh, I think she had a few second thoughts at that point in time about uh, attending West Point. Um, She also really enjoyed the fact while I was at West Point, she didn't really enjoy the part where I'm in the army and go into Bosnia and Kosovo and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, as most, as most mothers uh, would be concerned about their sons.
0: That's uh, absolutely. And you were clearly in harm's way a number of times, but before you got there, before you became commissioned out of West point and what year were were you commissioned?
1: Uh, 1993.
0: Okay. So 19. uh, So, You talked about your freshman year at West Point. I want to go back real quickly. What kind of doubts did you have as a West Point freshman about the decision you had made?
1: Well, you know, I sort of like to joke that I was institutionalized for four years. There's a whole heck of a lot of rules at West Point. You know, there's times when you wake up. There's times when you go to breakfast. There's times when you go to class. Um, I only missed one class. I only... Uh, missed one class my entire four years at West Point and I got punished for missing my sophomore year French class uh, where I had to put on my best uniform and walk back and forth across a parking lot for, for four hours to, to, for missing that class. Um, why'd you miss the class (laughs) uh i had an opportunity to take a nap in the morning and i slept through my alarm and i didn't get up. i woke up with like five minutes left with a class and i'm just like okay i'm not gonna make it
0: dylan how much marching would you be doing right now
1: (laughs) uh not that much (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) sir uh
0: dylan's a student right now and i'm I know from time time to he may have been late to a class.
1: No, I'm kidding. Actually, no, I miss so many classes. Like, <laughs> if I ask at the start at the start of the semester, is there an attendance policy? <laughs> it's good to it's good to know the ground rules. And so, and there is an attendance policy at West Point. There is an attendance policy, but you know it's it, not to make light of it. But there's a game uh, to it, and once you learn the rules of the game, and you adhere to the rules, and and learn to not make mistakes um you know you, you learn what you what what's rewarded what's isn't and and you work hard within within that system um you know the strong science side of it uh I struggled a little bit with uh freshman year calc uh did great the second year in math but then struggled with physics um but then once I got into the history department I did did phenomenal and so you know, when you get into something that you really like, and I picked things that I wanted to do at West Point that I liked, which was study history, because the rest of West Point wasn't that much fun. And so I figured, hey, I might as well study something that I liked. As my friends are all complaining about having to be, elect- you know, they chose to be electrical engineers or other things, and they they didn't really enjoy the, the studying as much as I did. And so, um, you know, you you take – you take those things, those positive things, and and those were things that I really liked, and I've I've got a great group of friends from West Point. Uh, I think you I, don't, I think you met met a couple of them that came down. Yeah, uh, we do a a, a spring golf uh, event uh, every year. We pushed it to this fall this year, so we're going to to Kehoe Island uh, over Labor Day weekend with those guys again that you met, um, and so lifelong friends that came out of it. Part part of it is the adversity and the hardship of being there. Uh, cause you know, really make some some exceptionally tight bonds, and so I stay in touch with Brent and Pat and Homer, uh, you know, every couple of weeks uh, to this day.
0: Was there a professor at West Point that made an imp- that had an impact on you that that you can look back today and say, "Wow that that was that was something special that was life changing."
1: Yeah, uh, without a doubt, uh, Dave Lamb, uh, who was my freshman year military history. Uh, professor. There was about 50 of us freshmen that were selected for this class, Um, and so we called our, we nicknamed ourselves Lamb's Disciples. Uh, He was just a larger-than-life character. He'd been in the 82nd Airborne Division. He jumped into Grenada, Ranger Tab, told great stories, was fun to be around, had been a college swimmer, um, and he influenced my career path. Uh, I chose to become an infantry officer. My whole goal after being in Lamb's class was to uh, go to the 82nd Airborne Division as a, as a second lieutenant, go to airborne school, go to ranger school, all because of this one, one professor that I had freshman year. There were others along the way, uh, but uh, Lamb by far uh, had the biggest impact on me.
0: So you graduate from West Point. Did y'all beat Navy while you were there?
1: Uh, we beat we beat Navy three out of the four years.
0: Okay, so you were during a good run.
1: Yes, we were. <laughs> it, it, it was a good run. It was not during the drought for uh, about the last uh, fifteen years, and now the last five years of Army football has been pretty good. Uh, Coach Munkin has has uh, put in a good system, good team. Uh, he, the the cadets like him and like to play for him. Uh, and he, his name was actually up for the university of Kansas, uh, football, uh, coaching job, uh, because of the job that he's done at West point over the last couple of years.
0: So you come out of West point and you said 80,
1: Nine, So graduated sorry. in 93, came down here to Columbus, Georgia. I was gonna this say. is, this is my fourth time, uh, being in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, I'm eventually, I think in two years, I will cross the point where I've lived in Columbus, Georgia, more than any place else in the world, because I grew up in Delaware, Ohio, from from birth to age eighteen. But I'm I'm closing in on eighteen years in in Columbus, Georgia.
0: That's that's interesting. But your first trip here was to air was to Ranger School. Uh,
1: well, first trip was in 1991 to Airborne School. Graduated Airborne School in '91. Came back in '93 uh and went to the basic officer uh course at that point in time it was called IOBC it's called Bolic now or IBolic right now uh but came down here for that that started in June uh we wrapped up in October had a month worth month while we waited for a ranger school class to kick off and then in early December started in ranger school uh and did the fort Benning phase here um then came back after the christmas break which still happens to this day uh, went to the uh, desert phase then mountain phase and then Florida phase because at that point in time there were there were four phases so you had
0: to go out into the desert
1: yeah and it was super cold in the desert uh, We would wake up with frost on our sleeping bags because it would it would get up to 50 during the day but then it would drop down to into the 20s at night um, there in the in the desert around El Paso Texas
0: So Ranger school sucked.
1: Ranger school was not, was not a real fun time. Uh, lost 20, 25 pounds. Uh, had you're the, not a big guy. Not, not a big guy. Had the opportunity to redo Florida. Uh, I was a recycle in Florida due to patrols. Um, but uh, in my second time through Florida, I got a patrol in the first day or two and got to go and never got another patrol uh, after that in Florida and went on to graduate uh, right back up here. At, at so Fort what County. class were you in? I graduated, graduated in March of 94. Okay.
0: When you were getting your tab in March of 94, did the thought ever strike your head that you would be coming back one day as the commander of that school?
1: Well, my whole philosophy in the Army was I was going to stay till it stopped being fun. And so I, I had an initial five-year commitment. You sort of only have that horizon, and, you know, you're excited about going out to be a platoon leader, and I wanted to be the best platoon leader I could possibly be in the 82nd. Didn't really think I would ever have the opportunity to come back and lead airborne school and ranger school, you know, when I was standing on the field. And they d- at that point in time, they didn't do it on the, the, at the pond. At Victory Pond. Yeah, they did it up in the field where they do the day stakes during yeah. uh, best ranger competition. So a uh, little, bit, little bit different, but, yeah, I, I, I didn't think – at that point in time, the only thing I was thinking about was I wanted to go out to Four Winds and get a Ranger Burger, uh, and then I wanted to go to McDonald's as often as I possibly could.
0: And, and eat Big Mac after me. Mac. <laughs> right, right. You know, I guess that one of the things about Ranger School is sleep and food deprivation. I mean, that's two of the things you have to deal with if you've never dealt with that in a le- at that level, what happens when you start getting sleep-deprived and you start getting, I mean, malnourished is not the right word, but you start missing meals? Yeah.
1: Um, so to give, give folks that aren't familiar with Ranger School a little bit of background or, or, or uh, so they understand, uh, while, they're, while students are at Ranger School, students only get uh, two meals a day. Uh, they also tend to only get about three to four hours of sleep every night, uh, through their entire six. And those day.
0: meals are MREs most of the time. Right.
1: Right? The, right. the, the meals are MREs. Sometimes you don't even get to eat the whole meal. Most ranger students lose about 20, 20 pounds while, while they're there. I came into ranger school in, in December 93 at about 190 pounds. I lost about 20 pounds, ended up, uh, graduating at about 170, um, And interestingly, my experience at ranger school is most students are either have more problems with the sleep or more problems with uh, the food. And for me, I was a sleepy ranger. If you put me down on the ground pulling security, I would fall asleep uh, within about a a nanosecond. Uh, I did not have nearly as much problems with the food, uh, but the food problems came after ranger school. Uh, So after ranger school, I graduated. I got sent to another course here at Fort Benning uh, and I ended up putting on that 20 pounds and then putting on another 30 pounds on top of that. So I ended up reporting to Fort Bragg as a 220 pound uh, brand new second lieutenant. All the guys that worked for me at that point in time were like, sir, you're so skinny now. Like, no, I was just really, really fat at that point in time. But like I said, I couldn't, I couldn't, Not stop at a McDonald's if I drove by it, and I wasn't real excited about running or doing any cardio to sort of lose the weight, and so put on a lot of pounds.
0: So you walked out of Ranger School, and what you had gone through had kind of impacted impacted the way you ate after that, right?
1: Right. Yeah, because you know you make while you're at Ranger School because you're not eating, you're making lists of all the restaurants you're going to go to, uh, you're making lists. Are you of right, all, writing
0: them in the dirt while you're well, walking? Well,
1: you've, you've got a little notepad that you always have to carry with you that's got some waterproof sheets on it. And so yeah, whenever you have a second, you know, you're, you're writing, hey, these are the 10 things I'm going to eat. These are the 10 restaurants I'm going to go to. And you're totally sort of focused on, on that. Um, and so it, it messes with you a little bit. And the recovery from ranger school. That's is,
0: by design though, right?
1: Right. Because part of it is, you know, the the whole idea behind the food and sleep deprivation is that uh, it's a way to put additional stress on people so that they find what their real selves are and it pushes them a little bit farther than they thought they could go before. And then that pays dividends when you get pushed into a very unusual environment of combat uh, that's pushing you into areas that you've never been before, and you've got this uh, experience that you can draw on. Uh, that's pushed you beyond your boundaries and and forced you to deal with yourself when you're cold, wet, tired, and hungry, and motivate others uh, and uh, and lead them in that that sort of process. That's the that's the real sort of secret sauce of Ranger School, uh, but and that's why it's such a powerful leadership tool and, and creates. These leaders that have this deep uh, reservoir that they can draw on of experience uh, that's pushed them beyond where they thought they could go.
0: When you were here for Ranger School, you got to know Colonel Ralph Puckett. Colonel Puckett was just awarded the Medal of Honor by President Biden in the White House on May 21st. When you think of Ranger and you think of Colonel Puckett, what comes to your mind?
1: So the, the the most amazing thing about Colonel Puckett for me is the uh, amount that he's given back to the Army community in what I would call his third act. You know, and his first his first act was as an officer in in the Army from lieutenant in Korea all the way to Hill two hundred five to Hill two hundred five and 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 then he eventually goes on to command a brigade at, at Fort Carson, uh, and then his second act he, he goes out into the corporate world. He runs. Uh, the outward bound uh, for a little while and then stands up his own uh, leadership, uh, sort of a cat outdoor leadership Academy. Uh, and then he moves back here to Columbus and he starts giving back to the military community and uh, the amount, the selflessness of him giving back. He was a mentor to me as a, as a commander uh he was also you know, led from the front uh, you know, several years before uh, the first women attended ranger school. Uh, he wrote a letter to the editor of the Ledger Inquirer that's, that said, hey, I believe that women should be allowed to attend uh, ranger school. And when a guy of that stature that's been the, the honorary colonel of the 75th Ranger Regiment for 12 years commanded a ranger company uh, in Korea, uh, commanded a battalion in combat in, in Vietnam, stands up and says that, that holds some weight in the ranger community. Uh, and then his selflessness, you know, he came out to every single uh, physical fitness uh, test that we gave at ranger school, all 20, all 22 during my tenure. Uh, That's 3am in the morning, right? 3am in the morning, he would walk out a mile on the five mile run, you know, yell and encourage the, the students and it was always such a, a positive leadership uh, experience. So, uh, all of us that were working at Ranger School were going, man, I hope we're living up to this example that, that Colonel Puckett is setting right now as a as a 70, 70 or 80-year-old uh, pers- retiree. He would have been
0: 80, he's 80, 94 now, so you go back six years, he's 88, when, yeah. when 87, 88. I mean, right. that is absolutely amazing.
1: Right the only concession to his age that he was 88 was the the 5 mile run is done in the dark at ranger school yeah. uh and so we we forced him to actually wear a reflective belt so the ranger students would see him and then we would make a ranger instructor walk with him so nobody knocked uh, Colonel Puckett down because we didn't want to have uh, a ranger student in the excitement of trying to run the five mile run as fast as they could actually knock Colonel Puckett down and, and you know, have him break a hip or, or something like that. So what did you think
0: is you were the commander of the airborne ranger training brigade back then? What did you think? What the first time you saw him out there, did you kind of go look up his history or did you know who he was?
1: So, so I had been here uh, 2006 to 2009. I was the Brigade S3 or Operations Officer for the Hammer Brigade, the 3rd Heavy uh, Combat uh, Brigade. 3rd ID. 3rd ID, which was out at, at Kelly Hill at that point in time. Uh, we prepared them to go to Iraq, and then we deployed to Iraq and did the 15-month uh, surge uh, in Iraq. And then I came back here, and I worked in Building 4 or, or – um, the main headquarters building on, on Fort Benning uh, for another nine months, writing a, a, a field manual. Um, so I, I I was familiar with Colonel Puckett, his story. I think that by that point in time, uh, they had named the road after him. I may be getting the dates a little bit wrong, but was familiar with him and and you know his amazing story. Uh, I'd gotten Words for Warriors, uh, which is his first book, uh, by the time I came back, he wrote his second book, Ranger. I got that uh, as well. Uh, and, and he pulled me aside. You know, you're the new commander. You never, I'd never served in, in the Ranger Training Brigade before. He had been a uh, company commander basically up in the mountain phase uh, after he recovered from his wounds in Korea. Um, and he pulled me aside and, and offered some some great advice. And so, you know, when you get that sort of advice – from a a living legend you know you take it to heart and uh you don't want to disappoint him
0: well and you were in a different situation than any of your predecessors as the commander the army had asked you to gender integrate ranger school i mean that was a very heavy lift at that time because it had gender integration had not gone well in the marine corps army's moving into it uh there was going to be done a little differently. And you were kind of at the helm of that, or certainly at the center of the bullseye. Um, What did you learn about leadership in 2014, 2015, as you went through the gender integration? And you had the first two... uh, They've had seventy-nine women graduate from Ranger School as of now, so they probably may have a hundred by the end of the year, or close. Uh, it's becoming a more common thing. But nobody had ever been there, and you had three—you had three women
1: graduate on your watch. What did you learn about leadership? Um, so a couple things, and um, talk a little bit about leading organizational change, and before having to tackle this huge episode of organizational change and culture change and uh you know seismic change basically um with the first women attending ranger school because it became sort of a lightning rod uh, for women's roles in the military women's roles in combat um, because the there were the clock was ticking and by january 1st 2016 all services had to determine what jobs and units uh were were not going to be open to women so the pilot program of Ranger School was really seen as a test bed uh, for uh, a large portion of the DOD in which direction it was going to go on January 1st and what they were going to ask, uh, report back to the, the commander-in-chief. No pressure. No pressure. Um, so, so one of the first big takeaways is um, in leading change, it's not binary. There are not people that are for it or against it. And the best thing that I've seen is this idea that there's four sort of uh, camps of people and it sort of looks like a sine curve. uh, That You have the people uh, that are uh, active resistors. You have people that are passive resistors. You've got passive supporters. And then you've got active supporters. And this idea, you know, before ever having to lead this this huge sort of organizational change, I kind of thought, well, either people are, are for it or against it, and you just got to move them from the against it to the for it category. Well, people aren't like that. And you get the hardcore active resistors that are the, the, the ones. Those that,
0: were the ones on Facebook. But Bubba, what was Bubba
1: Moore? Right, right. Good memory. Uh, <laughs> I remember him well. <laughs> right, right. And so those folks were the active resistors uh, that you were probably never going to Yet. but you had a group of passive resistors that were trying to see how the change was going to go, and they could either go, they could go back to being active uh, resistors, or they could maybe become passive supporters, depending on how the change uh, went. And um, as I talked to corporate groups about about leading large organizational change, you got to think in years, and the fact that you're going to move maybe 10% of folks from the active resistors to the passive resistors, from the passive resistors to the passive supporters, and from passive supporters to active supporters, in um, that idea, in that concept of hey, you're not going to get everybody on board right away. There's folks that are all waiting and seeing and trying to see. Did what's you know happen. this or did you learn this? I didn't know it at the time. I've, I, I now on reflection, uh, it's clear, and I try to pass that lesson along to folks, uh, but. Um, it's one of those those things that uh, you, you know you you pick up from actually doing it. Um, the the second one was uh, on communications to the organization, um, and I I would like to think that we as an organization at, at Fort Benning between General Miller, myself, uh, the ARTB, and working with all the reporters and social media we did a pretty good job with external communication and we communicate that we tried to be, you know, my goal as a commander was to be as clear and transparent as possible about the process.
0: Were you for the media embeds?
1: I was, um, you know, some in your organization were not right. Some, some were not. Um, I will say, you know, you know, that, um, you know, I served as general David Petraeus's aide for two years. Uh, he was very, uh, open uh, with the media and so uh, I took that uh, philosophy and continued it throughout my army career I worked for general Petraeus from uh, 2001 to 2003 uh, in his uh, engagement with the media you, you know he learned that you know you guys are just like us and you've got a job to do and it, if you're open and transparent it makes your job easier uh, you hope that you hope as as from our side on the Army, that being open and transparent results in a better story, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, I w- was the same way as a battalion commander in Afghanistan. I had Chris Chivers in bed with us uh, for six weeks.
0: Chris Chivers is was a Marine, Ranger-tabbed correspondent for the New York Times and probably one of the best war correspondents there was. Right. Or he is.
1: Or or is. Uh, Chris is an amazing individual, wrote extensively about Iraq and Afghanistan, and then went on to cover Libya. Um, He had a photographer, uh, Tyler Hicks, that was always with him. They did amazing stuff uh, for the New York Times. Pulitzer Prize winner uh, for his story uh, in—it was on the Beslan massacre in Russia um, pre— like 2005
0: because of his military experience and knowledge commanders like you were more prone to let him closer to the action. Right. Right.
1: Well, and he was, uh, you know, low, you know, didn't require a whole lot of, uh, external, uh, help. Uh, you know, he and Tyler were self, you know, self-supporting as they Just could like be. I had
0: two guys dragging me to the top <laughs> of Paloma. You didn't
1: have to do that. I didn't say that. You said that, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, uh, you, know, I, was, you know, he covered us in the New York Times uh, in Afghanistan for a couple of weeks. And unfortunately, on the front page of the New York Times, uh, during a, a gunfight between my scouts and, and the Taliban, the Taliban sent a 14-year-old kid out uh, to retrieve an AK-47. And, then, and when he grabbed the AK-47, scouts didn't know how old he was, but they, the scouts shot and killed him. Uh, that ends up on the front page of the New York Times. It happened. Uh, my unit did it. I'm responsible for it as the commander. You don't typically want to have that sort of article hit the front page of the, of the New York Times, but that was the, the cost of, of having Chris embed with us. And part of Chris embedding with us, and I thought my role as a commander both in Afghanistan and then on in the Ranger Training Brigade, was to help tell the great stories of these people that are in the military, uh, the Iron Rockassans that were fighting in southern Afghanistan, and then the Ranger instructors that are managing uh, this, this cosmic change uh, when, when women attended Ranger school. And so uh, I felt the best way to do that was to be open and transparent with the media, and that's why we brought, brought you guys in.
0: When there were three of us, myself, Dan Lamoth with the Washington Post, and Anna Ryan with uh, um, Christian Science Monitor, and I think Rich Hoppel from the New York Times showed up at the, near right. the end of it. But and and that Gail. And Gail. And Gail Zamak Lamon. And that's kind of where I'm going with this now. Uh, you obviously, you, deal, you dealt with that change in a, in a successful way, I guess. I mean, you know, it was pretty much your last assignment. Um, I think you did some stuff on post before you got out a few months later, but it was pretty much it. Um But I want to go back to Afghanistan. Right now, we're out of there. I mean, you know, much of your career was centered around Afghanistan. You commanded a battalion over there. How many deployments into Afghanistan did you do?
1: So I I did one deployment into Afghanistan from 2010 to 11, and I did three three deployments uh, in Iraq. Uh, 2003, the invasion, uh, back again for 2005, and then back again in 2007 and 2008. Um, but yeah, I, you know, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is hard. Um, you know, the 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 valor, the honor, and the sacrifice of of the battalion uh, I was fortunate to to lead uh, as we fought across Paktika Province, uh, in Ghazni Province in 2010 and 2011 uh, is you know it's a central part of my life. Uh, you know, I was working a six and a half day a week job, uh, trying to you know get as get everybody home uh, safe uh, to make a they difference. All,
0: they all didn't come home,
1: did they? No, it was a tough fight. Uh, we lost three uh, three soldiers and had over hundred uh, wounded uh, during during the year deployment. Um, you know, but but we worked hard to try to uh, you know increase the safety and security uh, of those two provinces. Uh, we worked with our Afghan partners, we worked with the governors, uh, the army, the police, uh, and it it was a tough year, uh, exceptionally tough. Um, and it's tough to see us pulling out of Afghanistan, uh, but we're 10 years later than that sacrifice that my battalion uh, put into it. And for whatever reason, uh, which will be debated for quite a while, and historians in another uh, decade will take a look at it, uh, but we really, you know, as we're seeing right now, we've kind of fumbled uh, our ability to help the Afghan army police and air force uh, stand up and be able to fight on their own. And we had 20 years to do that, um, and we invested a lot of money, a lot of equipment a lot of training, a lot of effort. You know, we were working every day with the police and the army and the NDS that was in our in our province uh, to try to make them better and, and so that they could uh, enforce the rule of law in their in their country and uh, make it safe and secure for the Afghan people. And the Taliban uh, has their own ideas about that. And uh, has right- the
0: Taliban reclaimed the two provinces that you worked? Have you looked at that? Do you know yet?
1: Uh, There, I would say, even while we were there, uh, it was partial control. Uh, The Taliban, uh, we controlled some of the larger villages and some of the roads. And in the rural areas, the Taliban uh, provided security. They had uh, judges that moved around that that resolved disputes. Uh, They taxed uh, the the locals. uh, And they had a system of laws, which was Sharia law, um, that, that, they, that they enforced. Um, they were doing a lot of the things that in 2010 and 11 at the height of the surge that we wanted the Afghan government to do, uh, but we couldn't get the Afghan government to do. Ghazni province, the province that we were in for the second half of the tour, uh, actually the area that we were in uh, about two years after we left actually revolted against the Taliban, kicked the Taliban out because of the pressure that the Americans and the Afghans were putting on them uh, and it's established a bigger bubble uh, of, of Afghan government control in, in that area. It's since slid back. Uh, they're back. The Afghan government is back being in charge of Ghazni city proper, Sharana, which is the capital of Paktika, and then a few of the larger villages. But when you get out into the rural areas, the Taliban, because uh, the locals see them as a better chance for the future. They don't see the Afghan government as a better chance of, for the future. Um, and that's the tough thing. Uh, we wanted them to be the best shot for the future, uh, and they fell a little bit short. As a
0: student of World War II, what's the difference in the way the Germans fought and the way the Taliban fights?
1: Uh That isn't the best analogy. Um, What what uh, is? I mean, you can turn the question on its ear if you want to. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you can talk uh, the entire history of counterinsurgencies, and, and, you know, the U.S. draws a lot upon the French experience in in Indochina, you know, and then our experience in Vietnam, the British experience in Malaysia and and Northern Ireland. Um, Insurgencies are sort of, you know. So this is more, the Taliban's more like the IRA? Uh, the Taliban's, uh, definitely more like the Viet Cong, um, than, uh, than, than anybody else. Uh, IRA would be probably be a good, good analogy as well. I'm not as familiar with Northern Ireland. I'll stick with, with the the areas that I'm more familiar
0: with. And in what way? I mean, the ambush tactics, uh, the the IEDs, I mean, in what way?
1: Well, uh, so I think the bigger thing to take away is, um, and I've, I will forget who did the research, but um, uh, an intrepid reporter in Vietnam in the 60s uh, was not buying the U.S. Uh, nightly briefings at five o'clock uh, in Saigon, and so uh, he went to the tax collection, the the Saigon tax collector, and evaluated every single district by tax collection. And you could tell where the Viet Cong had control based on the amount of tax collection that the South Vietnam South Vietnamese government was doing. Uh, when you talk about a shadow government like that, that was what the Taliban was doing uh, in Afghanistan. They had taxes, they provided security, they rolled, and they had judges to resolve disputes. Uh, and so they were running. They were. They had a system. They were running it, uh, and the locals did not see the Afghan government as as being able to compete as well with that. For instance, Sharana, Paktika province, which was the first province I was in, didn't even have a court. So if if the locals had a dispute, they had to take it all the way to Kabul to resolve that dispute, or the governor would run unofficial sort of court sessions and would just bring people into his office and hear them and make decisions. Um, And so you wanted that stuff to work, but it, it, it didn't work. And so that's where the Taliban comes in, fills the vacuum and provides that kind of stuff that that folks want. Cause you folks want a framework that they can base. Hey, I'm going to be able to farm here for the next 20 years. And you know, the, the Taliban's going to take 10% every year, but that's okay. It's better. It's consistent. It's reliable. I know what they're going to do and they're going to do that. And I can keep farming here. Um,
0: what was your reaction a week or so ago when you saw general Miller and his command staff, you have been on command staff under him at Fort Benning. When you saw general Miller and his commanders on that airplane with American, I don't know if you saw that American flag photo and they were coming home. You knew the guy that ran the last four, three and a half, four years of it. You knew Scott Miller. Well, you know, Scott Miller. Well, um, uh, what were your thoughts when you saw General Miller? I mean, your Afghan veteran, when you saw him coming home, what were your thoughts? Well,
1: it was tough. It, it was tough seeing. Uh, you know, I, I've known people that have fought in Afghanistan for the entire twenty years of the conflict, from the guys and women that went in uh, in the early days. You know, post 9/11 in October. Uh, that were you know parachuting in or riding the horses uh, all the way to General Miller at the end, and it's sad. It's tough. It's tough to. It's tough to see. It's tough to to you know process that the twenty years worth of work there is over, uh, and it didn't end the way that we really wanted it to, and so that was which exceptionally means a tough. victory.
0: It didn't end in a victory.
1: Well. And I and I know well, it, I, I, it was never going to end up with a victory and a victory parade and all that. It was going to end up in some sort of status quo where the Afghan government could, you know, stand on its own two feet, operate, and be able to to move forward as a functioning nation. Uh, I think we're going to struggle to see that. Uh, the Afghan government post the Soviet pullout in 1989 last three years. Um, and so my mark is, will this Afghan government last for, for three years? And that Afghan government fought the Taliban to a standstill uh, and really collapsed only when the money dried up coming out of the Soviet Union as the Soviet Union collapsed. And so they're um, we'll, redrawing lines on the battlefield right now. We'll, we'll see what that sort of stabilizes out to be. And see what the government of Afghanistan is able to to put forward going forward here for the next couple of years. I have my fingers crossed that they'll be you know you know right now it's it's chaotic um, and uh, things are moving quickly, but it's going to eventually stabilize out into some sort of status quo. And how much of the Afghan government and how much they control is going to be very interesting and will set the stage for them going forward for the next couple of years. And it's
0: something everybody will be watching. Right. You've got a copy of a book right there, and I want you to hold it up. Dylan, you want me to hold it up? Okay. That's it. Perfect. Okay, I want you to tell me a little bit about this, and this is kind of what you and I have been talking about, uh, leadership. But when COVID hit, you were working – Giving tours on battlefields all over the East Coast, I guess the country. Yeah, uh, leadership tours to business leaders and talking yeah. about leadership lessons. Well, you kind of went into COVID timeout. I guess is a good way to put it. You kind of went into you. You were cautious during COVID, um, and you uh, you decided to work on a book that you self published. If I got it right, there it is. Grow your grit. And it's leadership lessons. And essentially this book was written essentially a day at a time, just writing columns in your thoughts. What prompted you to do that in the, in, in the COVID?
1: Yeah, so, um, so when I retired from the Army in, in 2017, I went to work for another company and, and did uh, leadership training by taking groups to battlefields and talking about history and leadership. Uh, in March of 2020, uh, as COVID was hitting, I decided I wasn't being gritty enough. So I decided to stand up my own company, uh, the Five Code Consulting Group. Uh, and uh, so in March of 2020, I stood up my own company and I started blogging about leadership. And, and part of it was as COVID was hitting, COVID felt a lot like uh, the combat experiences that I had had. And I said, hey, you know, we're in tumultuous times. Uh, maybe some of the lessons, the hard one lessons that I learned in Iraq and Afghanistan, I can share them and can help folks get their, uh, themselves, their families, uh, and their businesses, uh, through this challenging time, uh, and out on, on the other side. Um, and so started blogging, uh, didn't, uh, intend on being a blogger, uh, at age, uh, 49, but, uh, started blogging twice a week on leadership topics, uh, and eventually in the fall, um, decided to take those uh, blog posts and turn them into a book. And I tried one book uh, and wrote it and it wasn't very good. And so I trashed that and then I took a lot of the, the stuff that I had put together in that and that ended up uh, becoming uh, Grow Your Grit. Uh, had a client, I'd been doing some business consulting uh, during the pandemic uh, and had a client say, hey, you know, uh, you know a little bit about grit, what are, wh- what are your thoughts on this? And I started looking around, I read Angela Duckworth's uh, stuff, I uh, read a couple other people's stuff on grit, and I, and I came to the conclusion that they didn't really have a good process uh, or good approach to how folks could grow their personal grit or develop gritty organizations. And so I sat down to write that, and I shared some of the chapters through my, my blog posts, um, and shared it out, uh, put the whole book together, eventually shared it out to five readers. They provided some great feedback, uh, and then uh, found an editor, hired an editor, uh, and uh, turned it into what you see uh, in front of you there. It came out it, on July 12th. It's, it's on Amazon. Uh, so selling a few of them? Sell, selling a few of them, yeah. You know, it's been a great first week. Just when, shipped off 50 today to a guy out in Hawaii.
0: When you say grit, most of us down here want to put butter on it
1: um, or cheese, right? cheese, cheese grits. Yes.
0: But, you know, and I just went to dictionary.com, which I'll do sometimes when I think I know the meaning of a word, but I'm saying, okay, grit is, and I'm sure it's not the one small loose particles of stone and stand. That's not it. I think this is the definition you're talking about courage and resolve strength of character.
1: Right. I like to define uh, grit as the will to persevere and achieve long-term goals. So the will to persevere and achieve long-term goals is how I like to define grit. So uh, I think that's helpful for folks to think about. And, you know, we all have these long-term goals that we want. For one, for me, one was publishing a book. Uh, and it became my own gritty, you know, gritty journey inside the writing about grit on how do you get this book out? You know, like just today I'm trying to figure out square because I have to sell some books uh, at a at a talk I'm doing in Missouri next week, and so I'm trying to figure out you know how do I stand up square? How can I take credit cards there? you know and, how to do that can you- <laughs> <laughs> And so you know same thing i i I you know I designed my own website. I had to find uh, the publisher that could help me. Uh, design the cover and do the interior design, work with an editor. Uh, I had no idea that people get paid to, to index a book, and so I had to hire a professional indexer to index the book. Are you uh, glad you did this? I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad. I hope it helps some people uh, achieve their long-term goals, uh, and uh, if it does that, it's a win.
0: A big win. You know, it's interesting because grit comes in a lot of different Ways. I mean, you deal with it, I mean, in retrospect, it took some grit to leave a newspaper job and come to TV for me. That I mean, that's, you know, and that's the kind of stuff you're talking about in here is people making their own life's choices, some of them which are maybe obvious but are not very easy. Um, and, you know, that. when did you first learn that you had to
1: have grit? to survive in the army, uh the the first day at west point when (laughs) you're running around getting yelled at by (laughs) every single person that's there uh and you're just like oh gosh when is this day ever going to end and it get you know and the sun comes up the next morning you're like hey i gotta i gotta put the shoes on and the uniform and get out there and do it again uh and that was you know west point is a long four year struggle and uh you know like we talked about earlier it's not the not the normal college experience uh, it is something that requires some grit and perseverance to to actually get to the graduation day when you throw your cap up in the air and you're so excited that uh it's over and you have an opportunity to go out in the into the army and try to try to lead soldiers
0: um you're you retired here. We're getting near the end of this. so um, I want to kind of start a wrap up, but you retired here. Why did you retire in Columbus?
1: So I think if you had asked me in 1991, when I came down here for airborne school, would I ever retire in Columbus? Uh, and I think you said, he- yeah, Ohio, I, I, right. <laughs> I would have said, I think the answer would have been heck no. Uh, but, uh, Having come in and out of here uh, over the years and watch Columbus reinvent itself, uh, the town is is amazing. You know the the '96 Olympics and the catalyst there uh, with the the folks that 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 brought softball here, uh, the dragonfly trails. You know, thirty eight miles of bike trails here in town that connect to Fort Benning, and so then you can ride all over. For Penning on the cycle, I'm an avid cyclist, so that was huge. I, I have become a huge ambassador for Columbus. I talk it up to anybody that that'll listen. You know, longest uh, urban whitewater rafting course, ziplining across the Chattahoochee, uh, great restaurants, uh, two new hotels that just opened. Uh, Columbus has so much going for it, and yet it was a declining mill town. In 1991, as I got stuff here was, in '89, as stuff was offshoring uh, and the mills closed up, and yet the town and the leaders here in the town uh, figured out hey, we need to reinvent ourselves. And, you know, Synovus has grown and, and prospered, Tesis, uh WC Bradley, uh, 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 Jordan and his uh, camouflage, uh, real salt, Yeah, Salt Life. All the, you know, Delta Data, uh, all these companies are growing and thriving here um, because of the great things that the, the town has to offer. It's got great weather, you know, uh, you know, the you know, winter is a couple of weeks of 30 degree, below 30 degree weather. You might get snow once every five years. Uh, the town has so much to offer for uh, offer. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm proud to, to be a resident of Columbus and, and live down in the historic district and have made some great friends here in town.
0: You know, you probably did a lot of running in your younger life just because that's PT and that's what y'all do. How many jumps did you have?
1: So I did uh, 102 parachute jumps uh, before before I, over the entire course of my career.
0: Is that kind of one of the things that led you to cycling was the damage that your knees and ankles took on those jumps?
1: Uh, Actually, knock on on wood, uh, other than a bruised rib and a concussion, I really didn't have too many jump injuries. Um, I have exceptionally flat feet um, from from my father's side, so I blame my father uh, for that. And uh, as I got older, uh, I I got some ankle uh, issues uh, from from having the, the flat feet. But didn't seem to slow me down. I ran every one of the uh, uh, five mile runs with the ranger students while I was in command, and I managed to to beat the forty minute time time hack, uh, which was pretty important. So, so that's the, a twenty
0: two runs. Twenty two runs.
1: Yeah, twenty two runs, five miles, forty wow. under forty minutes. So I, I was I was able to do it at that point in time. I'm a little slower these days, but uh, trying to keep it up on the bike.
0: Well, We've here hit a point in the show, which I, I, I may have told you we did this. I may or not have told you. I'm fixing to spring something on you if I didn't. I call it turn the tables. I've been asking you questions, and uh, I'm going give you a chance to shoot a question my way. I mean, is there something that you want to ask me kind of it, as we get to turn the table on me?
1: Um, yeah, so how did you end up as a reporter? I don't think we've ever talked about that.
0: That's interesting.
1: I wanted to go to ball
0: games. Okay. I wanted to be a sports writer. Okay. I had no desire to do anything else. I wanted to be a sports writer, and um, I was a kid. And early on, I mean, there were twenty-nine of us in my graduating class at Lightside School in Uvalde, and I think two of us ended up doing what we said we would be doing when we were ninth graders. Uh, One's a dear friend of mine, Walt Cochran, who's a farmer uh, down between here and Eufaula and Twin Springs. Walt's probably fourth generation, maybe fourth, fifth generation family farmer. You know, he pretty much knew he was going to Auburn get an ag degree and go back home and get on the tractor. Um, and I said I wanted to be a sports writer. I couldn't play. I mean, I was a terrible athlete. I was an awful athlete. But I loved going to games. And, you know, and I became a sports editor. I became a sports writer, sports columnist. I did some sports editing. And then after the Olympics in 2019, in, in 1996, after the Olympics here, I got a chance to move to the news side and I was a metro editor and did that for a while and then in two thousand I made a decision I wanted to, to report and I went back to reporting on a lot of what you were talking about, the history of this town. I was reporting the philanthropic part, the business part, the downtown revitalization and you know, and then you know, things started changing again. Four or five years ago, with the newspaper side, and made decision to do something really crazy. (laughs) I jumped out of an airplane, (laughs) essentially for me. Yeah.
1: Hey, softball for you. Best Bo Jackson story because I know you. I know you covered Bo uh, when he was at Auburn and when you were. A sports reporter.
0: My favorite Bo Jackson story. They had just beaten Southwest Louisiana, or one of the direct various quadrants of the great state of Louisiana, and um, Bo had had an unbelievable game. And it wasn't like today. They're in Bur- in Birmingham now for the media days. the The interviews were done in the locker room with the players right after the game, and Bo would jump up on a t- training table where they taped ankles, and. Bo jumped up there and started talking and he had a incredible stuttering problem. The, the freshman and sophomore Bo stuttered very, a lot. And, um, and, uh, I just remember watching him going, watching how painful it was. And then my other Bo Jackson story is I was at the enterprise ledger sports editor. I had a good friend who was an SAE at Auburn and he was, uh, he was in the fraternity with Pat Dye, Jr., the Auburn coach's son. And the freshman had just reported. And in that freshman class was a guy named Alan Evans out of Enterprise. Alan Evans was going to be the superstar, not Bo Jackson. And Alan Evans ended up transferring and finishing at UTC or somewhere. And Evans just never panned out. And um, Bo became the greatest player in Auburn history. But I was in – the SAE house visiting Rick and um Pat Dye Jr. came in and they were in fall practice and came up and a conversation during football and I said something I asked something about Evans. And he says, Evans is okay, but my dad says, Watch this Vincent Jackson guy, he can go. <laughs> I was like, Okay. <laughs> so Vincent Jackson, yeah, Vincent Jackson yeah. from Leeds, Alabama, or from uh, from Birmingham. Charles was from Leeds, Bo Jackson was from McIndory. I should know that. Okay, well, we have reached the end of the Chuck Williams Show. Our guest has been retired U.S. Army Colonel David Fiveco. David had a distinguished Army career that lasted nearly 25 years. He is now writing about leadership and has his own consulting company. Um, Colonel Fiveco, thanks for joining us, sir.
1: Thank you for having me, Chuck. This was great. Okay,
0: great. Link this to all your social media stuff. Okay, and hold on just a second. We're on, now we're going to my favorite part of the show. This is where Dylan holds Chuck's hand and walks him through it. The Chuck Williams Show can be heard every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m. on WRBL.com. And coming soon. Soon. How soon, Dylan? Soon. Really okay, soon?
1: Okay, I'm not allowed to say how soon, but um, let's just say like hypothetically, if I were to have like the, the money for the RSS feed like I was promised and everything, um, then we'll say... Expect like an announcement in the next like two weeks, we'll say.
0: And we're going to be on Spotify and Apple is where it looks like it's headed, right? I can't say. (laughs) <laughs> okay, we're not there it's Just, it's Just hang tight, guys. This, we've been saying this for 18 weeks. We're almost there. Okay, you can also follow me on social media. I'm available on Twitter at Chuck Williams. I'm available on Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL. And also, you can get me on Instagram at Chuck Williams 0999. You know, it's weird. This show is starting to turn into a military theme in a lot of ways. Colonel Five Coats probably a quarter of the guests have had military backgrounds and you know it's because of where we live we live in a town where the military is an integral part of our community thank you for listening to the chuck Williams show and i hope you join us back next next week but be kind be nice to everybody you meet out there right now because you have no idea what baggage folks are carrying